Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Well, my name's Tom Gibbs, and welcome to church this morning. I'm on the teaching team here at Red Church, um, and we've been in a series called Christ in Us, Christ Through Us. And core to this series has been just the fact that God cares about your daily life. Church is not about a Sunday performance, but it's about walking with Christ in daily life. And when we let God mould us in those moments of monotony, in those daily rhythms, as Andy said last week, you display the world to the world whose work you are. So there's great resources at the book stand. Uh, two books, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. I've read the first one. It's really good. It's probably about time I read the second one. And I'd encourage you to do, this, do the same. But how about we begin in prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> I thank you, God, that you are not a distant deity. You know us. I thank you, God, that you perceive our thoughts from afar. That not only do you know us, you love us, you accept us. And I pray as we listen to your word, as I preach, may we all hear the beat of your heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in my early 20s, I used to be an art student. Now, I did many of the things that art students do. I was broke, so I was trying to live off my paintings. I tried out the clean eating phase. I walked around for a while shoeless, uh, so I could just be a bit more connected to the earth, you know? Now, if, if anyone here is shoeless, I'm not judging you. I think it's a wonderful thing and I'm glad I did it. But <laughs> I was on a tight budget. At the time, I drove a little white boxy Daihatsu charade. Has anyone owned a Daihatsu charade in this room? There was someone in a previous room and deep respect to that man. My car broke down though all the time. I literally, there was, I got to the point where I used to carry a stick in the car because I realized if I managed to tap the starter motor under the bonnet whilst I was trying to turn the ignition key, it would work. <laughs> so if my car ever broke down, I would kind of have a tap. If I have a go, it might work for you. Um, but I lived in Brunswick and I remember I was driving down Sydney Road one day and I was on a rush to something pretty important. Can't remember what it was, but it was important. And my car broke down. So I had to pull over, 
the car. I pulled over, kind of, I had to stop pretty immediately. And it was a metered parking parking spot. Now, at the time, I had no cash to pay the parking meter. And my RSCV had recently expired and I was frustrated. So what did I do? Well, to me at that moment, the most logical fix to my problem was that I walked half a kilometre down the street to buy myself a donut. (laughs) And sometimes it's the minor daily monotonous moments that reveal how fragile we are and sometimes how irrational we are. I want to talk about those moments that emotionally short-circuit us this morning. Those Monday moments, those small triggers that, that can send us into an exile of this inner wilderness. Small things grow into big things. Some of you might identify here, but I think there's two types of people. There are those people who kind of get that dishcloth and they scrunch it up and they leave it in the bottom of the sink and those who just hang it nicely to dry on the tap. My wife and I have definitely had these conversations. (coughs) Maybe you've got other triggers, tailgaters, people who don't stand on the escalator, well, you know, escalators, you're going up the escalator, you'd hope people would stand to the left and you just can't get past them. It triggers me. People who don't mute their background noise for when you're on Zoom meetings. Here's a significant one. I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you and you can fight this one out. Do you squeeze toothpaste from the bottom or do you just grasp that thing from anywhere and just squeeze that sucker wherever you want? Let's fight this one out. Oh, great. Love the chatter in the room. (laughs) We all have these triggers and sometimes they send us spiraling. I'm a third generation sheet folder. My grandfather was known for his phrase, in chin, in chin, in chin. I never knew what he was talking about. I thought he was talking about his chin. But what it actually means is when you're folding a sheet, you need to have it just an inch down so that once you fold it again, you might want to try this, you get perfect folds at the end. However, some other people in my household, I love my beautiful wife, love to grab that sheet, scrunch the thing up and shove it in there. (laughs) We all have these triggers, right? I think I'm probably the one who's venting and getting a bit triggered here, but (laughs) sometimes these triggers are trivial. Sometimes they're more serious. They could be situational triggers like the loss loss of a loved one, maybe even just sickness, or they could be relational triggers like the cold conversation with your spouse on your way to church or 
the stale air in a room when you just know that people have been talking about you behind your back. And what do these triggers do? They reveal a deeper emotional space. When I became a school teacher, I began to realize that my emotions were actually dependent on the room of 12-year-olds. And if they were happy, I'd be happy. If they were down, I would be down. And that's probably not a good guideline for a school teacher. There was a turning point where I realized I needed to be in charge of my emotional space. And these triggers don't just reveal the emotions, but they also activate a choice. When we enter a threatening situation, these triggers activate a fight or flight response within us. Maybe in that heated conversation, you have a fight response and you say something that you regret. Or as you hear tragic news, you have a, a flight response and you begin to spiral inside yourself. I've been sick a lot for this, and a lot of people have been in this room, and even just in the kind of getting sick week upon week or getting COVID and I've got a whole week ahead of me, sometimes I just wanna fight the sickness and act like I'm healthy, other times I flight and I've been spiraling into just, I don't know, binging on Netflix or something like that. Some of us are fighters and some of us are flighters. But what's really happening in this fight or flight response? Whether you fight or whether you run, these responses are a response to things that are outside of our control. And the fight or flight reaction is an attempt to regain control. So this morning, I wanna ask you something. When something outside of your control sets you off, is there a better way to respond? Do we have to run? Do we have to fight? Or is there a third option? This morning, we're going to open to Psalm 63. I'm going to give some context before we delve into this. This Bible is full of stories of people. It's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is this life-transforming Word of God but it's also a multi-millennia document of everyday people making stupid decisions. And it's part of what I love about it because what culture documents all the flaws of their heroes? There's actually nothing else like it. And they're human stories and not every story is one that we are meant to mirror. We read the Bible with the lens of discernment. David, who wrote Psalm 63, is no exception. David is a king in ancient Israel. And in David, we sometimes have this mental picture of this kind of Goldilocks man, kind of curly blonde hair, playing his harp to his sheep. But he was also abandoned. And he, he, 
He was a servant. He was a warrior. He was a king. He had to manage armies. At his best, David was a man of integrity and he was a leader who ushered Israel into the most prosperous time of their history. But in the low points of life, he entered an emotional wilderness where he made some stupid decisions. He made leadership blunders. He had an affair. In his fear of being exposed, he even plotted murder. At times, David was a fighter. At times, he avoids his conflicts and he runs in fear. And as we open Psalm 63, we meet David in one of these wilderness moments. He's in the wilderness of Judea. And you can imagine this moment. He had parched lips. I can identify right now. You can imagine David in the desert of Judea, exhausted, hungry, thirsty in the sun, angry, hangry. In the Judean desert, he's surrounded by wild animals. He's in a place of danger. But it's actually more than this. David's wilderness was more than just a physical thing. David was driven out by Absalom. And if you're a Bible nerd, you can read 2 Samuel 15 in your own time, and it gives a lot of context for this. And the mess of political and relational chaos actually led David to run to the wilderness. He was so caught up in anxiety that he would rather be in the burnishing heat of the sun in the middle of a desert than in the comfort of his palace. Sometimes physical wilderness is more desirable than than relational chaos. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. Relational wilderness can start with small things like the moldy kind of kitchen cloth in your, in your sink to very serious things like family breakdowns, marriage breakdowns. Sometimes physical wilderness is more desirable than those things. And so David, in his moment of chaos, chooses to run. And David finds himself in the wilderness. And so we have this moment where David's in the wilderness and he picks up his parchment paper or whatever David used at the time, a scroll. uh, What did people use? Does anyone know? I don't know. And he started writing his lists of needs. And you can imagine this moment, David in the desert going, oh, God. I need water. God, I just, I need some shelter. I'm hungry. I need protection. And you can almost imagine this moment where David gets to the end of his list and it begins to turn into a song. And as we open to Psalm 63, we see this song. 
you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and behold, beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And all who swear by God will glory in him. While, their mouth, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. <clears throat> this is an inspiring psalm, but it's the context that makes it even more powerful. David, in his relational, political, social, physical wilderness, while he's fearing for his life in the desert, decides to write a song. And that song has been passed down and it's inspired people for three millennia. We all enter wilderness moments. Whether you're in one now or whether you're gaining wisdom for the day when you will be in one, there are things we can learn from David in this song. So my first point is this, and I encourage you, if you're a note taker, write it down. When David entered the wilderness, David knew that he was powerless and his life had become unmanageable. David is a warrior king who reaches his ends. It's when David was at rock bottom that he became aware of his thirst. If I was a king, I'd want to gather an army to fight Absalom, to get back into that palace. But David knew that his need wasn't for military might or political persuasion. He needed something that he couldn't produce himself. I mentioned it before, when you're triggered, let's call these trigger moments wilderness moments, there's the option to fight or to flight, to run. If you're taking notes, I invite you to draw a line on your page. And on one side, you have flight. On the other side, you have fight. Maybe you've experienced this, those moments where you're powerless. 
And it's easy to spend life reacting to situations that are out of your control. But in this wilderness moment, David chooses a third option. David chooses to surrender to God. David here gives us a template for what it means to surrender. So what do we mean by surrender? I don't know if you've seen season nine of Seinfeld, but there's an episode where Frank Costanza, and Frank, by the way, is George's dad. I'd had a few people kind of try to correct me before, but I love my Seinfeld. Um, To lower his blood pressure, he repeated this line, serenity now, serenity now, serenity now. But it never gave Frank serenity just to repeat those words, serenity now. It actually led him into fits of anger and outbursts later in the episode because of his emotional repression. Sometimes self-help mantras don't cut it. David made a choice to surrender. And how did he surrender? David surrendered by looking up. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. David made a decision. He had plenty to complain about. He was king and he had the resources to fight. I don't know if you've had devotional times where you've got a lot on. Maybe you've got a big list and your mind races through that to-do list, replaying conflicts in your mind, and it's hard to take that time to focus. But as we map this psalm in the context of David's life, we remember he still had to lead a nation. He was still a king. And in this moment, David made a decision not to look down, but to look up. This posture of surrender meant that David knew where to hide and he knew how to fight. David fought by looking up to God. David hides by running to God. If you want to live a life surrender, it's not by trying to be less passive or trying to be less confrontational. It's by knowing that in God you can hide. It's by knowing that God fights for you. David fought by looking to God. David hides by running to God. My third point is this. Feel free to write it down. David's prize of surrender was revelation. I don't know about you, but I catastrophize things. When I'm sick, it's not just a sniffle. Nicola would know this to be true. It is a man flu. And I lose perspective. And as David looked up, he received a new perspective. As David surrendered to God, he had a fresh revelation. Because David realized his life was, he he was powerless and his life had become unmanageable. Because David chose to look up, David 
could see things clearly. One, David saw who God was. Two, David saw him and his situation in light of who God was. This psalm is a psalm of renewed hope. As we read it, you can notice the change of tense. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. And with singing, my mouth will praise you. So by redirecting his gaze, David had the assurance of a good future. But not only that, David knew that God would be the one who fights for him. There's this weird kind of jolt in the psalm where David starts speaking about his enemies. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and will become food for jackals. But the king is talking about himself there. David will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. It's because David made the decision to commit his life to God. He concludes at the end of the psalm that God would take care of his enemies, that in God he would be assured that God is the one who would ultimately have justice, who would ultimately be the good judge. So how do we surrender? I want to give you three practical tips. First tip. Don't run from the wilderness. The wilderness in your life, whether they're these kind of daily moments or whether they are bigger wilderness moments, the wilderness in your life is purposeful. As we venture into the wilderness in everyday moments, those minor conflicts at work, when you run out of petrol on the highway, when your kids are having a tantrum because they won't let you, they want to eat crayons and you, you don't want them to. These are all places where you can allow God to shape his purpose for your life, where you can deepen your trust in him, where God can form your character where you can let God take you to a new level of surrender. For some of you, your wilderness is more serious than those daily moments. And if you're experiencing a situation that is unsafe, I want to be pastoral in this space. And sometimes you actually do need to run. Sometimes you do need to actually have a hard word. And please don't get me wrong here. David was unsafe. He had to run. But David knew where to hide. And from that place, he knew how to fight. Even in the wilderness, in the deepest wilderness, there's an opportunity to find Jesus. I believe that God wants to deepen your understanding in those wilderness moments of just how much he loves you. He has not abandoned you. He walks alongside with you. He grieves with you. 
So the wilderness is an opportunity for a new level of surrender. My second tip is don't get stuck in the wilderness. Now, that sounds like a bit of a contradiction to the first, but God meets us in the wilderness. God is not the wilderness. It's this great paradox that's consistent with all of Scripture. The Israelites went through the wilderness. Why? To get to the promised land. Jesus entered wilderness. He carried a cross. He took sin upon himself. Why? So we can be resurrected in life through his work on the cross. Death is not the final destination. The cross is not the final destination. Wilderness is not the final destination. Resurrection is the final destination. Your wilderness is purposeful. Third and final tip. Allow the wilderness to deepen your surrender to God. In the mundane moments of your week to come, there's an opportunity to let God form you, to let God love you. David's wilderness birthed within him a new song. And this song has been a prompt for 3,000 years. And a practical tip, when you reach these moments that short-circuit you, there's an opportunity to pick up these psalms, to read these songs and to use them as a daily devotional of surrender. I believe that your wilderness moments, even the little ones, are an opportunity for a new song in your life. Next time you're in a conflict, what would it look like to allow the tension to be a place of God's renewing work in your life? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we enter a time of worship, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'd love to enter the song of David. So feel free to stand. <clears throat> you might want to think about what those wilderness moments might be for you. Maybe they're trivial, maybe they're deep and personal. And I'd love to, to read this psalm over you. May this be our posture of coming to God, of surrendering to God and giving these things to him. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. 
With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and will become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. I will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. 